Hey, welcome back to Invisible Machines, a podcast produced in partnership with UX Magazine and OneReach AI. If you have been listening to this podcast all season long, you have no doubt heard Rob and I talking about LLMs and cupcakes in the same sentence. For a full explanation of how those two things fit together, I will direct you to episode two, uh, which is a great conversation with Jonathan Frankel, the chief scientist over at Mosaic ML, who talked about kind of if you're if you're building a custom LLM, you know you might not want to make just one giant LLM. You might want to or one cupcake. Let's say you might want to bake a thousand cupcakes that have you know different ratios of data sets so that you can get the one that is optimized for for your use case for what you need. And it was a fascinating conversation, and obviously we've talked about it a lot, but it came up again as Rob and I were kind of discussing how to regulate something as sort of unpredictable and now suddenly ubiquitous as generative AI. And we had the thought that, you know, a, a nutritional label, the kind that you find on packaged goods in the grocery store, could actually be a great place to start because you look at one of those and you decide if this is something you want to put in your body, you know, if you're going to interact with an LLM and potentially put a bunch of information in your head, you might want to have sort of a similar rubric. So, you know, a nutritional label for an LLM that could tell you how much Wikipedia is in there, how much Reddit is in there, how much proprietary company data has been sprinkled in, who built this LLM, who trained it. All that kind of information could be presented in a pretty concise way that might answer a lot of questions and could be leveraged to try and move this kind of technology forward more responsibly we were super excited to talk to someone about this concept. And so we were really excited when we connected with Mike Lee, who is the founder of The Future Market. He does a lot of consulting in the food space. Uh, and The Future Market is also a fascinating substack where he explores food and technology. It's a really interesting blog, actually, because he does write primarily about food, but his writing about technology is quite astute and in-depth. And really, this food blog has become sort of one of my favorite tech blogs, too. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Quick hat tip, too, to my longtime friend and colleague, Mark Brush, who is a Forbes kingmaker in the natural products space. He was the first person I turned to when Rob and I realized we really wanted to talk to someone who understood nutritional labels. And he connected us with Mike Lee, who not only understands nutritional labels, but he had actually had this idea of putting a nutritional label on an LLM. I think months before Rob and I did, and he actually did a pretty amazing mock-up of what that might look like. And you can find that in an article on his uh, Future Market Substack. So I definitely recommend you checking that out. Quick hat tip also to everyone who listens to this podcast and who subscribes to this podcast, either on you know your favorite podcast provider, or if you like watching this podcast on YouTube, definitely subscribe there. We love when people leave comments. A lot of the comments that listeners and viewers have left for us, have really been informative and helped us uh, guide future episodes of this podcast. It's always kind of a work in progress, like a conversation. It's kind of always bubbling and changing and ongoing. Today's conversation is a great one. Mike Lee is going to blow your mind a bit, I think. So let's get into that conversation right now. All right. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us here on Invisible Machines. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and Rob, a pleasure is always what? seeing you. Where, where hey. are we? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Mike, we we had a good conversation last week, and we we kind of talked a lot about how certain processes and regulations and systems and food re regulation, you know, might be useful as we try and kind of wrap our arms around AI as well. But 
And I do want to get into some of that stuff, but I also on your on your blog today, I was reading a really great article, your blog, uh, The Future Market, um, about how uh, slow food, like slow food for AI and how the concept of slow food could actually be incredibly instructive um, as we're kind of in the, in the stages of dealing with generative AI in particular. So I thought maybe if, if you could kind of give a quick introduction to slow food and talk a bit about that, that might be a really cool place to start. Yeah. Well, so slow food's a, a movement that originated uh, some years ago. I don't remember, but it's been around for decades, a while um, in Italy. Uh, and it's in a nutshell, I mean, it stands for a lot of things, but in a nutshell, it really just stands for being the antithesis to fast food, um, highly processed, cheap calories, you know, stuff like that. Um, really emphasizing place and provenance and process of, of food. Um, it's just kind of these old school values that I think in the world that we live in with faster and faster everything, especially food, it's just become a really salient kind of antidote to to that, right? And so um, I think similarly, uh, AI is moving extremely, extremely fast, right? And I don't think that... Um, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with kind of the calls for like moratoriums, not because I don't think they're useful. I just think they're absolutely completely impossible to enforce and, and happen, um, arguably counterproductive too. But I do think we just do need to be more thoughtful, thoughtful about um, what are the motives of everything? What are things coming from? Where are you getting kind of stuff to create these things? And also like slowness in terms of figuring out the right economic models, to be honest with you. Um, I think a lot of people talk about the alignment problem in AI, which is misalignment between machine and man. But honestly, I think that until we get to AGI, I don't think it's as big of an issue as we think. I think the bigger issue pre-AGI is misalignment between humans, uh, between corporations and users, between corporations and other corporations, between people and the law, right? I mean... Um, depending on how kind of open AI and, and meta decide to monetize their, their AI models, I think is going to have a reverberating effect to how those things are designed. I mean, we uh -huh. already saw this with social media where the business model was monetizing people's eyeballs and that one kind of big incentive leads to a huge domino effect of basically creating systems that are all engineered around optimizing that one thing is eyeballs. And then that's yeah. where you get, you know, the algorithm, the way it is amplifying, you know, echo chambers and misinformation because it gets eyeballs because right. we optimized only for that. So I think slow food is not a silver bullet, but I think it just forces you to kind of really just not race to get the easy money. Right. And really be thoughtful about the downstream right. impacts of saying, we're going to go, we're going to do an ad model for AI, you know? Right. Okay. Well, what does that actually mean? Right. Don't just shoot from the hip and do it because your investors are asking you to do it. Try to kind of force yourself to think deeper into the yeah. process. So, yeah, it feels like, um, to me, you kind of walked it down this logical, logical tree. The beginning of the tree is, is this a unintended emergent complexity sort of event? negative event that was like all the right intentions bad outcome or was this you know bad intentions from the beginning 
you you really do have to branch at that point to say like it's going to be two remedies right one remedy is probably not going to serve both of those scenarios so you walk down the remedy of bad actors doing things on purpose and you probably could say we have a lot of things in place already for that um sure we could add more we can always add more you know and that's true for guns that's true for technology that's true for food you know gmo blah 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 right yeah um like there's you know that is true for any technology including pesticides and blah 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 so so then you go down the road of okay does this technology have a greater possibility of negative unintended consequences than other technologies in the past and i think that's arguable to say you know genetic modification of our food versus ai i'm not sure you know stem cell research i'm not sure that you could argue that ai is has you know greater danger than those um but let's just let's just say that it's in that same category and and as such we need to do something and then you have this other perspective which is um in order to learn and innovate you have to break things you have to move fast and break things and we all acknowledge this slowing down like as a country and saying okay we're going to slow down the rate in which you know we learn essentially um would also basically say we're going to learn on somebody else experimenting in other words we know everybody's not going to slow down so what we're basically saying is we're going to let someone else break things and then we're going to learn from their mistakes Uh Um, and then we can all say is that good or bad Um, because are we walking away from the opportunity to innovate yeah um and say you know that's too dangerous and the the risk reward is that we'd rather somebody else you know innovate and us follow which you could kind of say like that's what everybody else has done with the united states so if we decide to do that it'll be unprecedented right because we're you know we're always the ones who tend to lead in innovation as a country so this would be a new uh, you know a a new a new muscle for the u.s to sit back and not lead innovation but I think the I think that's where maybe the metaphor breaks down when you jump from food to technology. I, mm-hmm. I don't think that maybe the speed element, even though it's in the name slow food for which makes a lot of sense for for food. I mean, that name was created as a creative antithesis to fast food, right? It, mm-hmm. denoting the speed. I think when you're talking about tech, uh, it's not necessarily the speed of like the the thing that we should be worried about. It's more just the mindfulness. Part of the slow food movement is not just kind of slowing down how you're cooking and eating. It's being more thoughtful and mindful. Right, about exactly. The like it's eating. not exactly. It's not. It's not slowing the speed in which we we learn. It's just. In fact, you could say it's increasing, right? The speed in which we learn because we're thinking more. Yeah, I think it'd be great if you had kind of an entity that was being really thoughtful and deliberate about their choices and careful in AI, but are moving at like an extreme, right? Extremely fast speed to do that because. Then you're just going to get more reps about being thoughtful. The problem is if you're moving fast and not being reckless, then right. you're just so you know not. It's a, really about yeah. moving fast at scale, 
versus moving yes. fast. That's like the fear. Like, oh, you know, yeah. Are we? Are we? It, it, it's not the speed in which you're innovating. It's the speed in which you're deploying it at mass, and and maybe that's thinking, that's important well, to I, distinction, right? I've been thinking about also to the mass thing for a while, right? Because like you know, rewind like two minutes ago when I talked about the social media thing. Social media has network effects, right? So it didn't make mm-hmm. sense for everyone to create their own Facebook. It made more sense for everyone to go onto the one Facebook. Right. So that obviously accumulates power for Meta, for Facebook. I don't know how important, to be honest, on a practical everyday use case level, like OpenAI might be in 10, 20 years because uh, there's not really a network effect at play into you know, ChatGPT, right? A... The the locally, uh, the open source local model that I have on my gaming PC is just as useful, even though I'm the only person using it, right? Uh-huh. And in fact, I think that's going to be more of a defining feature of the AI world, the generative AI world in the future. It's not who's going to win OpenAI versus Llama versus whoever. It's going to be, everyone's going to have our own, you know? Yeah, yeah. And... You could almost imagine the opposite that you having your own or having the next best thing is a way to differentiate yourself versus like an advantage to all, us all using the same one. There's probably an advantage to staying with the next best thing, trying different things, getting different results. Because if everyone uses the same one, we are, you know, how do we compete? We're all going to get the same, the yeah. same answer, I mean, right? It- I mean, it's like music and the rise of the MP3, right? Is the MP3 sound as good as the lossless master tape of the Taylor Swift album? Uh No. Does that matter? No. Nobody needs, not everyone needs the fully lossless kind of version of the album. The MP3 was good enough. Does everybody need the latest GPT-7 or whatever it is? Probably not. The GPT-4, you know, that's going to be on everyone's machine on their own is probably Uh enough. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. you brought up mindfulness um, because you know most companies aren't particularly known for being mindful. I guess with maybe the exception of like Patagonia being like a thoroughly mindful company. Um, because in, in the article too, you you bring up this idea that you know it was a lot of like startup food companies that kind of disrupted big food and made them, in essence, that you could say become more mindful of some of their practices. Uh, and we now kind of have that correlation with with people being able to create their own LLMs and generative AI tools and kind of in some way dictate the trajectory. Yeah, I think that's going to happen way faster. I mean, I I think I always kind of compare food. I primarily almost exclusively work in food, but I used to work in tech for a brief stint. So I'm always kind of looking at the patterns of change between the two and and food, I always think is a slow motion version of all the other stuff that's innovating in, in, you know, in tech. Uh, I mean, you know, we had Netflix and the idea of the infinite kind of library of stuff you can access well before we had online food shopping, which is sort of the same thing. You know, you can, I mean, it's just the idea that like you're not relegated to the groceries, the four walls of your local grocery store to get food. You can now go on wherever and order anything you want. Um, That happened in a way slower way method than something like movies or music did because movies and music can be easily transportable related related to food but so i think there's always parallels between tech and food um just food slower yeah yeah i mean because the yeah the, the the idea that nutrition it's like it's one thing to experience food and that's great 
but there's always the side effect of your health and yeah like we I think the, the same holds probably, true of tech though right like you you kind of ingest right. it you get that dopamine hit and then yeah. you're left to deal with the consequences yeah yeah, yeah. i guess we all i guess so like, like social media maybe more specifically like i mean you know tiktok is just eating the doritos one by one by right. one by one right and, and yeah. we're going to we're we're starting to see like what is the effects of like you know growing up eating digital doritos your right. whole childhood what it, what does that turn you into yeah well yeah and I, I i i can go back my mom was like one of those early hippie health food you know when health food stores weren't yeah. everywhere and my friends you know were like wow you you eat this weird food at home um right and uh and i can i can say that it was it was almost a stigma to eat health food like it was it was weird um i was embarrassed oftentimes as a young child you know when i opened yeah. up my lunchbox and everybody opened up theirs and had white bread skippy peanut butter and jelly and mine was like brown bread bananas and crunchy peanut butter that my mom made at ground at home and i would like to like, turn i know i would like hide my lunchbox you know i'd like oh man you know i just kind of like hide in the corner and eat my lunch because because i was so embarrassed um which is crazy the tables have turned she was right and all of that stuff and i i tell her that all the time um, I was the same thing with Chinese food. I was always given the weird Chinese food thing, oh, and all right, I wanted right, was right, yeah. peanut butter and jelly. And and now, like jokes <laughs> on all, jokes on all of you because you're all waiting in line on, on in Resi trying to get into the latest whatever Asian fusion place. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and maybe that's kind of where we are with social media. We're like, we're not. We're just we we talk about the need for socializing, and maybe we're we're embarrassed to say we don't get enough or that we're lonely or that you know it's there's a stigma around around it which prevents the conversation of like what is a good diet of socializing look like what is you know what is a balanced organic you know portion versus a junk food dorito portion of socialization yeah, because um, then we can have that conversation as long as we're not embarrassed to say that, you know, that we're not getting what we need, and, yeah. well, and that there is a good there's good calories and bad calories. Then we can, you know, once once we're all aware, then then we can, like you said, it can go mainstream. Uh, the discussion about empty calories in socializing. Well, and I think this connects back to that slow food analogy, right? Part of the slow food movement is just kind of you know, slow food doesn't. Uh, it doesn't explicitly say don't eat dessert, don't eat junk food. Right. It's just if you're going to kind of be purposeful about it and you know make sure you have balance. You know, right. I, I think you can totally be. You, you, and I think that's the same with kind of just anything digital. I think the problem is when you get stuck in kind of an addictive click hole and you didn't want to be there and you're mm-hmm. not sure why you're doing it and it's just you're just your dopamine is just taking over and you're just kind of turning into a zombie doing it versus it like, I mean, sit down for 45 minutes and just scroll through TikTok because I've had a really long week, you know? Right. Like, I think there's a huge difference between those two kind of behaviors. And I think that's the same analogy for, you know, it's okay to eat a bag of Doritos every now and then, but it's a problem if you're just like compulsively 
addicted to them and you eat them all the time you know that's that's a very different situation right right or or you know you're not getting you're eating them instead of, of instead of, of a yeah. real food yeah yeah, yeah a real food exactly. and i've heard that nutritional advice too like you don't you shouldn't eat something that you're grandmother or grandfather wouldn't recognize as food like if they saw it and were like what am i supposed yeah. to do with this but but that model kind of falls apart with the speed we're talking about because um yeah my grandmother barely recognized technology at the end of her this life is, so. is, yeah i i know that i understand the sentiment behind those pieces of advice but like they make me real because i'm just like it's not a good way to judge your nutritional advice, you know? No, I mean, the no, because you I, might be I, smoking a cigarette while you're, like, eating that frying bacon, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they also, like, my grandmother is generation also smoked cigarettes on airplanes, you know? <laughs> yeah, so exactly. it's like, the, the other one, I, I made a big, I, I, I brought this up in one of my other pieces, but the other one that I hate is uh, don't only eat food where the ingredients are things you can pronounce. Which I'm like, okay, so does that mean arsenic is safer than xanthan gum? <laughs> it's yeah. a totally ridiculous thing to do. It. It's like, you know, dihydrogen monoxide can kill you. It can cause corrosion. It can do all this stuff. Well, what's dihydrogen monoxide? It's freaking water. Like, so I, <laughs> I can't stand the food charlatans that kind of say like, oh, eat only ingredients you can pronounce because it's like that is not a yeah. like your level of literacy should not be an indicator of a food's safety or healthfulness. Right. Yeah. Well, there's also those elements of food too, where like an optimal diet is different for each person. Um, totally. So, uh, so totally. then again, I guess technology intersects because it feels like truly preventative kind of medicine starts with maybe a, a hyper-optimized right. diet that is full of like foods that are nutritionally yeah. balanced specifically for, for your ecosystem, I guess. And I think like, you know, AI, AI, potentially has the ability to be more of an echo chamber reinforcer for individuals because you know before we had to just kind of like abide by whatever echo chamber the mark zuckerberg you know algorithm created now uh -huh. you've got your individual like you can you could have your own little like sycophant like assistant saying like you know <laughs> hey i had this idea about this thing what do right. you think about that? And then, like, you could trade it to potentially just be like, oh, yeah, just be your hype man, you know? And just like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, you're right. That's really interesting. You know, I think this can be, you're right. The the earth is flat. Like, you know, and here's all this, like, BS evidence. <laughs> like, so, I don't know. It, it's like, that's sort of like thing is, is, uh, you know, we all can kind of eventually, very soon, create our own little pet hype man in the form of an LLM yeah. that we've customized on ourselves, right? And say, I'm going to feed you a diet of only the th ideas that I like. And then people just, you know. So that to me is the uh, other edge of the sword with with yeah. you know, things like this. Yeah, yeah, maybe, I mean, I often th think about this, this, that we're, AIs may be a red herring and that what we're talking about is these centralized algorithms of decision making and and the emergent complexity and unintended consequences that come from centralization of overly simplistic yeah. algorithms and and that large companies and enterprises are really just made up of a bunch of algorithms that tend to work at scale and 
and that you could break down you know a McDonald's into a series of algorithms and you realize that what's impressive about it at scale is that those algorithms are run pretty flawlessly across each McDonald's and each factory that makes buns and you know um and like all the way back to the source to, to your you know to the whole sourcing the the original ingredients and yeah. and you're like all these ingredients are all these algorithms are just replicated and that what makes them so successful is the degree in which the same algorithm works globally no matter where you yeah. are and that's what allows them to scale and that's what that and that centralized algorithm is what makes them successful um and that other companies that have tried to create algorithms at scale it turns out need more customization yeah um, and are are subject to you know to more environmental or specific circumstantial si- situations that cause them not to work right you have to adapt them yeah. for each location and therefore they don't work so they discovered wow i found an algorithm that works globally that's great that's what makes a good business but maybe ai to your point is like a new world in which those algorithms can't compete with ones that are flexible and can adapt to each environment so now we end up with you know let's call it slow food fast food whatever yeah locations that have algorithms that don't operate exactly the same that can adapt and and so we have a new kind of enterprise emerging where the old one that's like basic algorithms that work more broadly can't compete with ones that can adapt and and you think of like humans right what makes humans as an organism so impressive it's our adaptation capabilities uh-huh. not the fact that you know we we were just created to perfectly fit into you know this environment um yep. but it's more that we're so adaptive and and so if that's the formula for success then ai might make look make all these enterprise companies and their basic algorithms sort of uh you know something we look back at as like oh my god you know we didn't know what we were doing back then yeah and i think there's an analogy that's been happening in the food industry for the last 20 years that i think overlaps really nicely with where we are right now in tech which is you know, um, you know, I do a lot of talks around the future of food and everybody always tries to ask me like, oh, what's the big thing we're going to be eating next? Like they, they want me to like, they want me to say like, oh, kale's hot next year. And then everyone's going to buy kale. Right. And I think like, uh, that increasingly is impossible to triangulate because we're living in this world where it's the end of one size fits all food. If you are a vegan in the middle of nowhere in the 1950s, you were probably the only person you knew who was a vegan. Now you could be anywhere in the world in a vegan and you connect with thousands of other vegans and, and find like-minded people and you can raise your hand to corporations and say, hey, look at all of us vegans, like make products for us, right? And so, you know, combine that with the barriers to entry to starting a food company are still relatively high, but they're lower than they ever have been, right? And there's so much infrastructure for a food startup founder to say, I have an idea for a cookie company to get going and get in market. Um, that you no longer have to just accept Chips Ahoy as the only cookie that's out there. You can make your own uh, and and put that out there. And so it makes it impossible to predict 
what the next macro food trend is because I don't think there is any. I think it's just going to be more niche kind of things because everyone can get exactly what they need. Right. And I think as an eater, that's great. You look at AI and I think right now we're all kind of, you know, sucking from the teat of open AI and their humongous model. Uh -huh. But as model, uh, it gets, you know, com compute gets easier to procure uh -huh. for an individual. And as these models become more and more prolific and open source, you don't have to settle for the big mo monoculture model anymore. You uh -huh. can kind of create your own. And now everyone has, is eventually going to have access to their own compute. And so um, I, I just... I, I just see it, it's it's just, you know, this is kind of the next huge enabler for the internet of giving individuals the power. I mean, social media and blogs and stuff like that, they ga that gave every individual the power to communicate and publish where only the New York Times was able to do it before. NVIDIA making cheaper and cheaper amazing GPUs uh, and open source like kind of models is giving everyone the ability to have their own GPT-5 or 6 on their mm -hmm. phone, you know, in five years. Yeah, so it kind of makes sense that the 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 AI tools that we see today can be incredible facilitators of a decentralized model. Yep. Like decentralized algorithms, essentially. Um, and that centralized algorithms are dangerous whether they're AI models or not, right? Irrespective of being AI, you know, we can go on a long list of ways that centralized algorithms have had adverse effects as you pointed yeah. out the paper the paperclip problem exists outside of ai it exists in social yeah. media today it exists without deep learning um it exists with gmos it exists well, you know we talked about seeds and the lack of diversity that this you know what is that seed um storage facility you know where they collect oh, all of the seeds. Svalbard yeah, yeah the yeah, emergency yeah. yeah right 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 and they you know they talk about the the lack of diversity in the seeds that they're getting right um and so we see that a centralized version of algorithms is dangerous because of the lack of diversity um and 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 that's because we value scale over diversity. Yeah. And we continue, we'll continue to do that. But what if you can have both? Maybe AI enables this concept of enabling diversity um, yeah. and enabling decentralization at scale. Uh, and so then, yeah, it's a really a whole new world. Now we're living in a world where there's many, many, many seeds that get created on the fly that are accounting for region, potential weather forecasting for the following year, et cetera, et cetera, yep. et cetera, instead of five different types of corn grown all over the planet. Yeah, and I think, you know, the paperclip problems really, you know, uh, is kind of a seminal kind of thought experiment people talk about, you know, for, for the perils of AI, you know, in the future. But we're, um, we're already kind of living in a slow motion version of the paperclip problem because... Right. To me, I read the paperclip problem as an allegory about what can go wrong when you give a complex, capable system a single goal to optimize for. Right. In this case, it was paperclips, right? Uh, we've already done that with the economy, basically saying that like companies need to optimize for profit, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, I think it's useful to know that like in the paperclip problem, 
malice on the part of the AI against humans is not a necessary condition for it to still destroy right. humanity in service of paperclips. It's just kind of yeah. doing the old mafia, hey, it's just business, right. it's not personal. You know, I was yeah. told to make paperclips and here I am. You yeah. have iron in your body and yeah. I need it. And I think that's how yeah, the you stock get market to... algorithm is so basic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we call them in economics, you neatly call all those side effects externalities, right? You uh -huh. know, where um, as if they are external to what? External to the profit motive, right? Right. But they're right. not really external. They're things that happen in health, public health and environmental health. And I think that's kind of where we are with big food and industrial ag. Is yeah. that you, you gave them the charge to make profit and they've reduced biodiversity, not because they hate plants just yeah. because they just thought that the best way to do it is just to yeah. monocrop everything. It's more so profitable. We had a really interesting conversation recently with um, Gardner. And uh, uh, remind me of his name, Josh. Um, it was uh, Don Scheiben. Don Scheiben, yeah. They just wrote a book. He just wrote a book um, talking about the future consumer being like a, a major chunk of, of the future buyer being a robot, being robots, right? So, okay. so th this this concept like, hey guys, robots are increasingly becoming the consumer, and companies are going to have to start thinking about marketing to robots, which is a whole new way of thinking, right? Um, because they're going to start buying stuff for people without um, without people driving it. They may surface like a human in the loop kind of component, like confirm or moderate, but it's pa basically going to say, hey, you know. For some, for a lot of those buying um, tasks that we consider chores, it, um, it could it could start helping us make those decisions for and and kind of take that off our plate. So, it, it, in a world where robots are going to start to become consumers and and maybe making food choices for us, right, <laughs> including other things, um, there's a, a an interesting idea about you know how how it will make those choices and whether we will trust that algorithm. Like, so we're not going to trust the algorithm that our print, that the company that built our printer provides us to buy ink because, you know, we know it's not going to choose the cheapest ink for us. Um, and in that analogy, we, we realize then there's going to be some reputation component and um, probably a an amalgamation of reputation component that that agent's going to use to make a decision or help recommend a decision. So there's a recommendation engine it's going to be built on that says, hey, where I'm going with this is that means like one day most of us could buy our ink from company A and the next day we might buy our ink from company B, right? And it could happen instantaneously. Um, and so company A will go from, you know, making you know, a, a mil taking a million orders a day to taking like a thousand orders a day overnight. Yeah. And then I'm mapping that back to the stock market and saying, okay, do those metrics now in that world profit? And it, like it, now, because in the stock market, you're you're trying to to price for future growth, right? For for a uh -huh. future um, state in terms of financial health. But now you don't know, like it becomes very unpredictable. Um, we're used to companies gradually, their products becoming less popular, having, you know, 
leading indicators of of slowly, you know, um, fewer and fewer consumers. And <clears throat> but now we'd be living in this world where one day you're you're hot, the next day you're gone, and your sales are down. So so those same metrics, you know, just because you're profitable today could mean you're out of business tomorrow. So now we're going to need better, more sophisticated metrics around um, how likely your product is going to remain um, highly rated versus, you know, so then we get into the things like really how good are you as, as a company to adapt? How, you know, how likely are you to 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 stay relevant um and and those old simp overly simplistic metrics yeah. will work and so we're gonna have to find new ones that was a long well, way I, you, of, of saying no yeah, I, shit's gonna change <laughs> but but i think that idea that robots are buying most of the stuff for us on behalf of us is already here i mean uh -huh. the whole entire industry of search engine optimization is trying to cater to the robot trying to right. you know uh, optimize your social media posts is catering to the robot so it's already yeah, here and there's probably a whole litany of companies that their main sales channel is instagram right and if they decide to change the right. algorithm whoops like you know you just lost 20 percent of your sales one day so i think that's already here yeah i think you're right you. yeah especially yeah. if you consider you know like um businesses you know so the whole you know, sourcing businesses, sourcing like a, you know, car manufacturer and, you know, th their whole, um, you know, vendor chain management and sourcing products and that happening algorithmically, it's definitely here. Right. Um, well, but I think it's interesting though. Like, let's say, okay, like r right now I search for something in Google and I get a bunch of paid search things that I didn't really control, right? Uh -huh. I might click on one of them, might not, but that was out of my control. If if I start using like my own LLM to do shopping, uh -huh. can, it, does that even the playing field a little bit more, you know? Like, I mean, is, it, is there really going to be a situation where someone can buy keywords in your LLM searches? I certainly hope not. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because, because now I kind of have... You know, there, there's the Google first page of search results is ninety percent aligned to what I asked for. It's ten percent unaligned, right? The the ad portion. Whereas an LLM, I can make it one hundred percent aligned to what I want, right? Um, by helping me shop for something, you know, give me the best recommendation for a guitar, right? And, yep. and I don't have to deal with these ads, right? Yep. Yeah, and that that would so, make it harder, right, for companies, because now companies can kind of target specific groups of users with ads but if 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 now the user is behind a bot wall of their own design that's been kind of calibrated by them to search for certain things like the the metrics change in terms yeah. of like how how you break through right but i think google's current iteration of integrating their uh bard into their search results is a really good maybe uh signal of what's to come meaning if i google for you know uh High, most highly rated guitars of 2023. Currently, I'm going to get organic search results, I'm getting paid search results, and I'm getting an AI-generated kind of recommend re recommender right now. And for now, they're all very somewhat clearly like differentiated. And I kind of look at that first page of like, okay, well, I have choices to make. I can trust the robot. I can trust the paid ads. I can trust the 
uh, organic search results, right? And so it might not be an or situation, it might be an and situation, you know, um, where it's it's like that's that first page is like my like cabinet of advisors, you know, and I understand where each advisor is coming from and I can still choose who I want to listen to with regard to a shopping item. So, you know, that could be kind of the the more realistic version of the future. It's it's not or it's and all of these different ways. Yeah. Yeah, and you might like want some organic discovery built in there as well too because I feel like a lot of times like if I'm looking if I got looking like maybe for a specific guitar um, the most rewarding outcome is when I find some type of guitar I didn't even know existed or like that, you know, an emerging need that I didn't realize I had. Yeah. I think we have to all realize there's like different modes of shopping. Like when I know exactly what I want, I just need no BS. I need to get straight to the thing. Whereas like, like incidentally buying stuff in your Instagram feed feels more like foraging than it is like. Yeah, you know, like you're walking along the forest, and oh my god, I found a truffle. You know, I'm gonna buy that right now. Versus, yeah. oh yeah, I do uh, need air filters. Versus yeah. on your own thinking, like I need a truffle, I go straight to you know truffles.com or whatever and get it. Right. So yeah, um, yeah, we we've noticed um, that the kind of the conversational AI marketplace sometimes feels a bit like the the supplement world. And that you kind of have a lot of these aggrandized claims and, you know, you can kind of invent proprietary ingredients and you don't necessarily have to back things up or prove things. Um, are there cautionary tales from that world that you see kind of oh, yeah. into like <laughs> tumbling into what was what's going on now? I, you know, I think it's not even just from food and tech. I think any sufficiently large market is always going to have a high percentage of charlatans, right? I mean, <laughs> um, I... I, I've done a lot of personal work on kind of image generation, and I, I stumbled upon a site, which I won't mention, but they're selling prompts. And I bought a few just because I'm just super curious. And like for $3.99, I can buy a prompt that gives me a Van Gogh style of painting of, of a whatever, right? Or uh, I can buy an LLM prompt that says like, here's this like intricately structured prompt to create a business plan off of any idea I put into the thing. And it's just words, right? I mean, it's not terribly, maybe for someone who's just getting into this and has no idea how to do anything, you know, that could be interesting to them. But, you know, I, I just, how long is that business model going to be really be relevant, right? Of me paying then, $4 for literally a sentence that says, Give me blank in the style of Van Gogh, Renaissance, comma, Renaissance, comma, best quality, comma, like, you know, th that whole, that definitely feels like the people selling like trucker pills, you know, at the, <laughs> <laughs> right now, it's just kind of like, uh, it's kind of weird, shady, it's really uh -huh. capitalizing off people that, you know, are, are just kind of not really being that careful yeah. about their shopping choices. Um, so yeah, I, I think... But, you know, in food, I think like, you know, ideally you build up a tolerance and you build up your own kind of immunity to, you know, sniff out of something as snake oil. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, or you know, people aren't falling. Well, maybe they are falling for weight loss. They're just getting more. I mean, weight loss pills of the 80s. Right. People would yeah. say, take this pill. Like, blah, blah, blah. You yeah. know, it's just like, uh, like, you know, amphetamines really. Uh, Ozempic is maybe just a more evolved version of that. Um, I think there's lots of examples of that in tech as well too i i can't b help but like think that to oversimplify this this feels like a you know supply chain management for your for yourself uh, like supply erp system for your life yep. 
and and that we we have we can see ERP systems, we can see supply chain management, and how important that is to automate. How much of that is already automated? To your point, like when you said we're already there, I'm like, yeah, it's called ERP systems, right? And and now what we're talking about with AI is it being feasible for every one of us to have our own ERP system, right? It's Excellent. it's a complicated, complex ERP system that understands us and can make decisions. Um, and, and it does make sense uh, that we would have this. It does make sense that they'll make decisions and that they'll need tools to make decisions on our behalf. And those decisions will have ramifications and trust will be a huge part of who's going to write those like you would never give your supplier access to your ERP decision making. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so, I mean, I think the double-edged sword is going to swing really big with the future of kind of generative AI because, um, y- you know, part of the benefit in food, especially of saying like, you know, hey, be be skeptical of what big food's trying to sell you, you know, mm-hmm. do your own research. The infamous last words, do your own research, right. goes both ways. <laughs> yeah. You get a lot of people that are very reasonable, you know, they can reinforce the reasonable skepticism uh, to, to, to craft themselves a more healthy diet. Do your own research for some people also leads to swallowing bleach and eating a flashlight to get rid of your COVID, right? Right. <laughs> so I think like, well, it, you know, it's that's sort of the analogy in... Right now, where most of the people are just kind of using whatever OpenAI is giving us, pretty soon it's going to be not do your own research, but like you should train your own model. Hey, train your own mop. You know, yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get the whole spectrum of train your own model fanatics from the bleach eaters to the healthy eaters. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like we're gonna tolerate our own mistakes, which essentially are the mistakes of the model we trained, more than we're gonna tolerate. The mistakes of the model somebody else made, um, and that's just that's just inherent in us to to kind of live with our own. At least we have that sense of control. We feel much better. Um, well, and I think that's why the alignment problem I do think is a red herring because it's like aligned to what mm-hmm. you know. I mean, yeah. what's aligned to uh, one person is is totally unaligned to another right. person, right? And so yeah. it's it's it's. Um, yeah. Well, something about the idea of like people buying up prompts too, like something that seems as basic as prompts makes me think that, you know, while it will be possible for people to have their own uh, sort of LLMs or like a, a better version that involves more context, a lot of people probably won't want, they won't know where to begin. They won't want to do it themselves. They'll need a lot yeah. of help. And so then you do end up with maybe preferred vendors. And and that again, seems like a big reputation thing. And if, if I think of the food world, in some ways, that almost feels like a restaurant, right? It's like you you go into a restaurant because you feel a connection, maybe with the what they're presenting on the outside. You know that they're using ingredients that have been screened for safety. Okay. And you might have a sense of like what's in season and what you might find there, but you also kind of like not knowing exactly what you're going to get. Uh, maybe if there's an open kitchen, you feel like you can trust it a little more. Uh-huh. Um, so it's like it's like regulated, but it's also I don't know. Like there, there's maybe a cool factor to it. There's there's all these different things that could be at play affecting your uh, desire to affiliate or use that product. Yeah, and I think I mean maybe maybe just the prompts that I bought as just a you know N of two sample set were just super basic, and maybe there is right. something there because you're right. I think generative models are sufficiently complex that 
there is a combination of words that are going to get you a really unique result over and over again. We just don't know what they are, right? Because there's just trillions of permutations of that. Um, I mean, it just, the first thing I thought when I looked at the prompt thing, the prompt marketplace, I was like, this is like those books that sell you like pickup lines. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, how? What are like like there is yeah. a secret combination. There is a combination of words that will get someone to give you their phone number. Yeah, just no matter like what you look like, <laughs> there's yeah. a combination of words that's going to get the image or the essay that I want out of Midjourney or ChatGPT. I just don't. I, I just don't know what they are, or I don't have the time to sit there to try to methodically figure it out. Right, and so. I could see a, a universe where I think there's there's a sufficiently complex and and uh, uh, useful with good results kind of prompt that I could see somebody paying money for, you know. Uh-huh. But um, but yeah, I, I just don't know what the repeat businesses of that. Like once you know, like a one pickup line works all the time. Like can't you just like copy paste it and just tell everyone like you know exactly the prompt? like. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's that's where the analogy breaks down because it's like you've got a lot of variables going on with pickup lines. The person you're giving them to and the pickup line is going to work right. differently. Whereas Midjourney or Open Sh- your ChatGPT's current model is relatively consistent. Yeah, it does bring up a whole other episode, which is like copywriting prompt engineered. <laughs> yeah, that's like a hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> and you know the whole like how much do you have to change something? before like that's could you copyright your prompt uh theoretically i think you know if if i was a third year law student and i was gonna paperclip optimize myself to pick a specific <laughs> law area to choose i would probably if i'm only optimizing for let's let's how can i make the most money possible to uh-huh. wear in the next 20 years i definitely go into some combination of like you know copyright ai law because I just think that that is the wild west, and a lot yeah. of copywriters copywriters are going to buy a lot of boats off of the questions like this over the next two decades, three decades. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we were talking before about like the idea of putting a nutritional label, uh, yeah. which is something you've written about putting a nutritional label on something like an LLM. There's a lot of information you can present, but like a nutritional label um, on food requires a certain level of science, right, to be able to kind of truly understand the component ingredients and their parts. Uh, but with like an LLM, some of that stuff's a lot more murky, right? Like you don't, yeah, you don't necessarily know like where all that came from and like what, what, what do you need to represent to people in order for them think, to feel safe? I think the idea of a nutrition label is important for both, but I think they mean different things when you're talking about food versus generative mm-hmm. models. You know, for food, it's it's really straightforward. I, I want to know what I'm eating, you know, what I'm putting in my body, mm-hmm. where it came from, and safety and all that, right? For LLMs, yes, there is a component of like, I want to know what my language model ingested to make it talk the way it does. Uh-huh. However, it gets really murky though because we currently still don't understand how you get from point A to point B. Like, if you know, if if a LLM it happens to suck up, you know, the entire text of Mein Kampf, does it make it an anti-Semitic LLM? Uh-huh. It, it, it's I don't know. It, I I don't know. It's probably dependent uh-huh. more on like what are the guardrails around it and if you're asking it to be anti-Semitic, right? Uh-huh. Like just it, it could have read it for research purposes and if I'm going to ask it a question about chess, the fact that it read some hate speech may not matter, right? Uh-huh. So 
that's where I think it gets murky is like, okay, great. I know all the stuff it read, but how does that actually correlate? How did that impact what came out of it? Yeah. You know, I, I don't really yeah, and know. In terms yet. of like copyright law too, that's pretty, yeah. pretty thorny, and, right? And, because and if, I have the... a, if I have a blog writing like fight club fan fiction yeah. that I'm somehow like monetizing, then do I owe part of that to, uh, is it Chuck Palahniuk? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Well, and I, I think one of the things that's super useful, but I, but I think that the, um, nutrition label for LLMs is valuable because one of the things that's been really useful in image generation and trying to get better images is pulling the metadata off of existing images and, and going uh -huh. on to places. And cause it's a really useful learning tool to say like, oh, okay, I love that style. I'm going to, I'm going to get the image metadata of the prompt and the negative prompt and the model and the CFG number and all that stuff. And I'm just going to like adapt it to my needs. That's really a, a force multiplier for learning how to really develop images. Could that be a force multiplier for people trying to train their own LLMs? Like, you know, like if, if I had all the weights of the current chat GPT, that'd be super useful to influence my own model that I want to train, yeah. right? So I, I think I think that's kind of an alternative value proposition for maybe having these um, nutrition labels yeah, for right. LLMs is to to accelerate innovation. Right. Yeah, and people talk about you know the idea that you could artificially generate data for LLMs, and I know there's you know there's research that suggests that it kind of breaks down the model, but I think that's Again, you know, it depends, right? I don't think that's, we're going to find out that it's just artificial text breaks down the model. I think we're going to, in certain circumstances, it does, in certain circumstances, it doesn't. But there's a way to look at this to say, once we've created the LLM that's sophisticated, a base level LLM could now help, help us sort through the data we're ingesting so that we don't ingest hate speech, right? Because... Because you do, yeah. I mean, I think people underestimate how much we could analyze the underlying data that's going into the system. You know, I think, yeah, it costs a lot more to like look at the data before it's going in. But at the same time, if, comp if there's a marketplace for that data, instead of it just being like data you scrape for free, but if companies like Reddit start selling this, then then they'll start to have a responsibility to making sure and an incentive to ensure that they kind of clean that data up. And and maybe that actually creates a more economic model that makes sense to like, you know, do more filtering on the data before it yeah. goes into the LLM. Well, I think also the, the whole like, okay, the whole thing about like, if you put hate speech in, hate speech is going to come out, you're going to create a biased LLM. I wonder if that's always going to be true because I think about um, could you get an LLM where it read no hate speech? Could you get it to create hate speech? Technically, right? I mean, but, mathematically, um, yes. Uh, could you do it uh, predictably? Like it? No, but mathematically, like why not? Once you get into those like long tail. Sure. Yeah. You know, who knows? With, with temperature set low enough, absolutely, right? I think about There's also the, the idea of like the, you know, you you know that Mein Kampf exists in the world. You know that your LLM might somehow come into contact with it at some point. So maybe it's almost like parenting. Like maybe I want to show it this now and explain to it why this is flawed thinking. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also like plenty of humans who prosecute against hate speech have to read a lot of hate speech. Do they Uh become hateful people? No, they're doing it for a different purpose. Their intent is to eliminate hate speech and therefore they have to learn about it, right? But I I think a lot about like uh, AlphaGo when it made that wild game two move 37 against Lisa Dole when it played Go and it was Uh a move that like completely flabbergasted everyone. Uh It it showed itself up in in chess thing too. I mean, I think like Gary Kasparov was saying like Alpha Zero when it was playing chess plays like an alien. These are not moves that any human really endorses. Uh-huh. And that to me is a perfect evidence of Deep Blue just sucked up a lot of old games, right? And so you could argue that Deep Blue just basically brute forced a library of human play and it's an avatar for every human right. grandmaster that ever lived. Whereas Alpha Go, Alpha Zero weren't that. They played on they found their own way to yeah. play, right? And so to me it's like you didn't give it any Go data or chess data, yet it created what right. is arguably the best move possible. Does that analogy hold for like, I didn't give you any data about copyright law. Can you now like infer your way to become right. a copyright lawyer as an LLM? Like right. that to me is just mind boggling. And I think that's one of the most out- exciting, then, outstanding questions about just generative AI in general. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting idea that, that Go move, right? Because... It is so famous, and the idea that let's say it's the system's objective to reduce hate speech in the world. Like, let's say that's, and let's say it figured out that with a certain persona or a certain type of person that's maybe on the fence that is prone to hate speech occasionally, right? That that being hateful and racist actually polarizes them in the other direction, right? Like maybe the the move is like, I'm going to be so extreme that that's going to polarize them to being less hateful, right? And so now now you got a machine that's, that's delivering hate speech with the intention to polarize the person it's interacting yeah. with to being less hateful. And we'd all interpret that as it's it's encouraging them and it's just smarter than we are. Yeah. At how to pull well, that I off. Think I, I mean, again, it comes back to the alignment thing. I, I think like a lot of this, you know, is AI going to spew out hate speech is more dependent pre-AGI on the person rather than the model, right? right. I mean, uh, if you took the regulators off of ChatGPT, I'm sure it's capable of generating hate speech if you ask it to, you know? Uh-huh. And, and, <laughs> and pre-AGI, we don't yet have a, a AI who is uh, sentient and going to make its own decisions. So really, who's to blame for the hate speech, the model or the person who yeah. asked it to do it? I think it's the person for now. Yeah. So it kind of it, it kind of brings up a whole other area, which is understanding, and I think you touched on this earlier, understanding the objective. What is its objective, right? Yeah. And, and then being able to measure whether it's meeting its objective or not, that becomes really, really critical because we may not be able to understand or presume to understand its method, right? As in go, we can't judge its moves and make assumptions that that's going to lead to the outcomes because our prediction machine is no longer as good as it's, right? So now we have to almost solely look at the outcomes and then trust that it's, if the outcomes are right, it's not question its methodology, which is like a really crazy idea you know 
Yeah. It, it, yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. The alignment issue becomes interesting too. Um, we, we had a conversation with Jonathan Frankel, who's chief scientist at Mosaic ML, and he, he likened kind of tuning uh, LLMs a little bit to like baking and mixology. Um, and mm-hmm. when they're working with clients who are wanting to create their own LLMs, the answer is often like bake like a thousand mini cupcakes and, and find the mm-hmm. one that you like. Okay. Um, so it's interesting because if we're talking about a world where lots and lots of people have their own sort of LLM or bot working on their behalf, then the alignment thing becomes more and more personal. And you have people becoming their own mixologists and depending on what how open these tools are, they're, they're cracking them open and deciding where they want the weights. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, in human terms, I mean, that becomes in, problematic if they start wanting In theory, things. if we jump 25 years from now and everyone's got a perfectly trained LLM that suits themselves, there is no such thing as an alignment problem because everything's the the AI is perfectly aligned to you. Right. The only alignment mm-hmm. problem is if I want to talk about hate speech and you don't, you know? Yep. <laughs> you yeah, know, so it's like the same alignment problem right. that already exists. Like yeah, people same problem responsibility. Removing responsibility <laughs> I, I, of alignment from the centralized to the decentralized, like to the individual, has huge ramifications to the that as a problem because trying to align to the general population is a much harder problem than as you're pointing out aligning to you correct i do think though the problem in current day that that is is probably more serious is that um okay if i'm just creating hate speech on my own on my own model i'm an n of one i'm the only person reading that Uh, it's not really that harmful to society if i can use an llm to hijack uh tools of amplification that's a different story right so like could you have an generative AI create enough web page links to manipulate the Google search algorithm so that my like hate blog is the first hit on Google organically? Right. That's a problem. Right. right? Yeah. So and, and I could see I haven't heard of evidence of that actually happening, but in theory, I don't see why it couldn't. Like, you know, here's a bank account of like six Bitcoin, create like a hundred thousand Squarespace websites that just have my like manifesto on them and boom it's going to be number one on google unless someone steps in to do it right okay. so i think that's a problem i think um the there was a ted talk with uh the deep fake guy that did the tom cruise deep fake and and that technology is utterly stunning and shocking and just bananas um it's if you haven't seen it check I it have. out it's, it's nuts it's frightening right yeah. it's great I think that, I mean, like, this election cycle is going to be interesting for a lot of reasons, not for the least of this is the first where we have very sophisticated uh, AI and deepfake tools, and I'm just kind of <laughs> yeah. uh, slightly I think there have already tense. been campaign ads that have generative <laughs> imagery, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, that, I don't I think see so, why not. Yeah, yeah. imagery, I mean, yeah. yeah, imagery, imagery, we've nailed, imagery has gotten... So it's gotten so much better even in the last nine months you know mm-hmm. i mean i remember i i was going through our old hard drive and i found some images of like my first couple like dolly like prompts and they're just so <laughs> yeah they look they they look so ridiculous compared to like what you can do off of the latest like stable diffusion mm-hmm. that's not even a year's yeah. time nuts yeah i and that, and that shows how rapidly like this is going to change. And if we add reputation to it, it kind of shows like what is a, a you know a company can be hot and then 
and then the next next week someone will surpass it and everyone will know instantly so we don't have this slow like word of mouth thing going on we'll have this like almost instant shift um and that kind of just gets back to like one of the maybe the core underlying solutions um or at least contributors to a solution is is really addressing the reputation we know as human beings that our reputation matters and a lot of the things that prevent like a coffee shop or a local restaurant from from doing anything too short term is is that human beings reputation the reputation of the people who work there and the reputation of the business as a whole if you are allow agents you know digital agents out in the world they don't care about their reputation they have no reputation mm-hmm. um to to care about and and so maybe this problem isn't as much of a ai problem as a problem with the social media platforms with google's algorithm that um they don't they don't go far enough to assigning reputation to an individual or if it's with some with some entity that has something to lose um because their blunt algorithm is based on how many users they have and they're not incentivized to say whether they're real users or not um yeah and google doesn't really care about you know whether the website that it surfaces um is you know is necessarily the best for society it cares more about you know keywords and advertising and you know the revenue for the search engine and that's what possibly has to change is that we have to trust these sources of reputation and they have to um be more accountable to a better reputation like system that would look more like a credit score not that that's you know that that's like the best example but what we know is they are highly accountable to a fraud it would be much harder to create a fake person with a fake credit score it would be much harder to game your credit score and there would be consequences to those companies if they let that happen a lot greater than the consequences we see with you know twitter for having bots on or facebook for having bots on you know if if there were fake people in our credit uh you know credit facilities companies that you know these companies like Experian or whatever um they wouldn't have a business and so yeah i think we know it's possible i think google still currently or wherever the google is in the next generation still plays a really big role in doing this because that you know that analogy i'm that hypothetical i made up about like you know create a hundred thousand square space websites with some horrible manifesto on it and there were Google should be able to account for that and discount that, right? I mean, yeah, they should know should the be... author, right? They should be like, I mean, maybe that's what they're missing is like, I, I don't know who created yeah. this, but I'm putting it here anyway, right? S- same yeah, as it's... same as social media. I don't know who authored this post. I don't care. As long as people like it, I'm going to post yeah. it. Well, and because Google still has incentive to be respectable, right? I mean, you know, uh, you know, there there hasn't been like an Elon type person to take over Google and just say it's whatever. 
yeah. um, they're still incentivized to kind of be. And, you know, I mean, for better, for worse, Google represents the objective truth for many people. What's the mm-hmm. first thing you do when you hear about a suspicious fact? You Google it. And it's not to say you just trust the first thing, but, you know, you can kind of, I think we've all built up our own kind of sniff test to say, like, I'm going to Google a dubious fact and I can just tell from the first page, is it true or not? You know, mm-hmm. you know, like if there's like 90% of the links are debunking it, then it's, it's probably false, you know? Yeah. But, um, so I think that that's, that as an institution of truth for better or for worse, it, it is objective. It does represent the objective truth yeah. for a lot of people right now. Well, that's that's a soft skill too that uh, that is changing, right? The nature of it, being able to kind of like yep. the sniff test on technology is yeah. becoming a lot harder to to. Uh, my smell. daughter's my daughter's three, and I think her sniff test uh, detector has to be so much more sophisticated. Is yeah. is going to be so much more sophisticated yeah. than mine. One thing yeah, I feel we, like mine's updated all the time. Yeah, but it is. My kids tell me. One te- thing we talked about earlier was the idea that with an LLM we put the responsibility on the system for being accurate um, mm-hmm. and it, at Google search and in Google they have this like advantage of shifting the responsibility to the end user for doing the sniff test and that's almost just a product of the anthropomorphic nature of LLMs right is yeah is like hey you're acting like a person so I'm going to shift responsibility to in other words if you googled something and found a site with hate speech you know are you going to blame google for it showing up in search results or you know I, I, to the degree that you would blame open ai uh, yeah. if it, if it delivered results with hate speech right and and the answer is for most people it seems like very squarely gonna blame open AI and put the responsibility on them. Whereas, you know, Google kinda effectively like moves the responsibility or at least perceived responsibility to the end user to say, well, I searched this. I had agency and 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 therefore the results are a result of what I did. And and that I got multiple um I, I got multiple results and I chose the one with hate speech, you know. Like it just is, moves agency, right? This is an area that I think is so fascinating that I haven't fully unpacked yet. So a lot of this might just be like open-ended, out loud thinking. But like, so like, you know, in, in my world, in food and nutrition, uh, a lot of little think pieces have been written from nutritionists that kind of say, uh, everyone's talking about ChatGPT. So I tested it out, trying to ask it nutrition advice and, you know, uh, blah, 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 right? And then more often than not, it, they, they just kind of declare in some headline on LinkedIn that says, ChatGPT is not the future of nutrition. You know, it got all <laughs> these things wrong about this and this thing about carbs is a myth and yada, yada, yada. I can't really pinpoint why. I, I think I generally know, but like I haven't put it into words yet, but like that critique bothers me a lot because for just so many reasons, I think, because I, I think you're right. Like, yeah, you're right. That's the evidence of what you said of like, they anthropomorphize ChatGPT as like basically a bad nutritionist. Right. You know, and so that's, ChatGPT <laughs> is not a good nutritionist. But I was like, okay, well, you're kind of missing the point because it never claimed to be, but also like that stuff's also with the internet, right? So right. 
but you're right because like if you funnel all that stuff to one point of accountability it's very easy to say that like ChatGPT is a bad nutritionist right uh-huh. on the one hand it's representing just everything that's been said so you're not really blaming ChatGPT. you're just representing bad right. nutrition advice in general on the other hand, it's almost it's also like, you know, I would never ask my three year old for nutrition advice and if she gave me like, you know, you should just eat Skittles for dinner, I'm not gonna call her a bad nutritionist. She's learning, you know? Right. Yeah. And it's like the same thing with like ChatGPT and all these things. It's like writing them off because they can't do something right now is kind of foolish because it's like saying a third grader doesn't know how to do brain surgery. That's <laughs> it's, it's why would you say that? It's just it's not the right Right. Critique, I guess, you know? On the yeah, interface, and- too, right? Like uh, a chat window, you ask it a question, it just gives you an answer. Google yeah, gives you a list. So it, I think you just the, perceive the information differently, too. Well, the fact that it types it out letter uh-huh. by letter is a mm-hmm. UI nuance that I think should not be overlooked as being very shrewdly, it personifies it. I, know, I right. feel like I'm chatting. Uh-huh. It, could Absolutely. Prob- it could totally wait 10 seconds <laughs> and just flash the whole thing up there. Yes. But, but it doesn't. So, uh, I mean, yeah. So, I don't know. It, it's just, it, I, I always had trouble with those critiques. Yeah. Not that I'm in support of bad advice or bad information. I just think it's not a very precise or helpful critique. Yeah. Well, it's also like a reflection of the information that's out there, right? Because nutrition Correct. in particular is like a very murky subject to go poking yeah, around. Yeah, it's a normalization of, of what's broadly out there. And, and, y- if if that's what you're looking for, then that's where you should go to get that. If you're not looking for that, you shouldn't, like you said, it's not a nutritionist. It's a source of what is what is common knowledge, right? It's a source of common knowledge. It's not a source of of the latest, coolest knowledge on nutrition. it's It's outdated um already just on on sort of when, you know twenty twenty one. And then, yeah. and then it's normalized because it's not, it's not looking at edge cases. It's not looking at the latest study from the medical journal that just came out. It's m- mashing them all together and just giving you sort of the common advice that is known out in the world. And so if that's what you want to know, then that's what you got. And, and that's what's out there. And should we all do what's common knowledge? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but at least know that. I think when, when you look at how Siri and Alexa and these tools handle it, it's sourcing, right? It's sourcing the the knowledge and saying on the website, you know, nutrition.com, it says blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And it attaches to reputation in that way. And that gives us, you know, a little bit more faith. I guess when you don't source it a- anthropomorphically, what we do is, then we attach source to the mouth of where it comes out of, right? Um, yeah. And so if I were to say to you that, you know, bananas are bad for you, you would source me. But if I said I read on blah, 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 that banana, then you would then you would account the source, right, that I gave. And so I guess by sheer point, by it, typing it out, acting like it's thinking about it, and then giving you its answer um, and... And it not coming from a particular source, we're relying on the reputation or building a reputation for that LLM. And then as such, we're constructing like, okay, what can we trust the LLM for and not? And everyone's 
you know, creating this matrix of you can trust it for this, but not for that and for this and not for that. Yeah. And... <laughs> well, and I think this is where we, this is clearly another example of where we clearly as a, as a society just have to get better at prompt engineering uh, uh, each of us, because I think like it's very, I, I think the nutritionist writing off ChatGPT as a bad nutritionist is an artifact of people being very used to saying like, oh, Dr. Oz is a quack, so I'm going to write him off, right? Uh, but the truth oh. of the matter is the LLM is not Dr. Oz. It can be Dr. Oz if you want it. It could also be Dr. Phil. Mm -hmm. It could also right. be like the doctor from The Simpsons, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> it, it can be all of those things. And I think it's, we're, we're still at a phase where I think it's, um, you know, we we just maybe aren't asking it the right question for the answer that we want, you know? Yeah. And yeah, also, well, we're we're generalizing. We're saying, I asked it this; it gave me a wrong answer. Really, the anthropomorphic nature is it's not an it; it's 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 a series of its. It's it's you know it's many machines, um, it's many models, uh, and and each interaction is you know is fairly unique. And so, one time I did this, and it gave me this is a more precise way of saying it. Not to say it's bad at all things that it's like one time I said this and it said that the next person could write the same exact thing and it could be absolutely spot on and and you can ask it one thing and it'd be off and then another thing and it'd be on and and so really we shouldn't be thinking of it in general terms we should be thinking about very specific interactions um, just like we would with Google I did a Google search yesterday and this came up but we know in a month I could do the same search and something else will come up and y you don't say Google's a bad nutritionist. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, and I think those are kind of just issues of just, you know, just optimizing the information retrieval. Like I, I think with LLM specifically, I think there's like kind of like two things that you can look to it for. You can look at it for information retrieval, right? right. Which is essentially just souped up Google, find me these facts here and, and bring them to me in a really easy to parse way. Uh -huh. Or uh, you can ask it to be a more creative uh, insights, in, you know, in basically synthesize new knowledge out of right. data, right? Which, which is what humans do. We read a bunch of stuff and then we come up with our own ideas. Um, and so that to me, again, is interesting is like, how, you know, when you can upload all of PubMed into ChatGPT and then give it a little bit of the, you know, move 37 go magic and, you know, could you get an AI to develop a new treatment for cancer if it read every research paper and, out there? Like that to me is super exciting yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. if that's possible. Yeah. We, so in, the, our, in a prior conversation, we talked about this and I think it's super relevant. Um, you said it actually, which was that, um, it, maybe we just need to think of the LLM as a way for machines to talk and be impressed that, wow, look, machines can talk, but not necessarily marry that with the fact that LLMs can have ideas, generate ideas on its own, or even be a resource for for knowledge, a sole resource for knowledge, but just saying the resource for knowledge lays behind it. And it's just an interface to that knowledge. And all it is yeah. is just a UI. It's just a way to get machines to talk. And we're, and it's confusing us with the fact that it occasionally gets things right on its own. Yeah. I mean, the way I kind of look at LLMs right now is that it's like hiring an undergraduate student out of college to work at your company, <laughs> right? Like, let, let's say you work at a stock, stock trading company, your investment bank or something like that, right? 
you don't hire an undergrad per se because they know every single piece of data about every company that's investable. Okay. You hire them because they have core skills in speaking, reasoning, math. Right, they can read and write, yeah. <laughs> and logic, right? But but then mm -hmm. you learn on the job, you fill that undergrad's brain with domain-specific knowledge. You say, okay, welcome to the team. Here's our proprietary training algorithm. I want you to learn this, you know, and, and right. you're getting it because you can learn fast. I think that's what kind of the base model of ChatGPT is right now. And that's the analogy that is... For, for everyone having their own LLM is like, okay, everyone's going to have our own undergrad student trailing us and we're going to fill it with a Google Drive full of additional documents that relate to my world. Right. And that's going to become a grad student in my domain. You right. know? Yeah, I'm going to fill um, it with nutritional data that it's going to use. Totally. Um, but I'm not going to rely on the LLM itself to, to, to surface that. I'm going to feed it the, the specific data that it, the ideas, and then it's going to manipulate those ideas and and regurgitate them in a way that is easy to understand and consume for a five year old, a ten year old, a twenty five year old, a non nutritionist, an expert nutritionist. Yeah, and so we're just looking at ways to recommunicate to regurgitate those ideas. Um, so we're just looking at a highly customizable UI that's that's hyper personalized for the reader and not necessarily the source of the ideas themselves. And that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, if you go back to the, the, you know, nutritionist writing off ChatGPT as a bad nutritionist, well, if they knew how to download a base model and then add all of their papers that they've ever published as a nutritionist into it, that person in theory would never think ChatGPT is bad because that'd be akin to saying they're bad. Yeah, akin to say yeah. that. They're like, it's, it's like, genius. <laughs> but, and and that's the double-edged sword is that like you can, you're just creating your own hype man or woman. Right. You know, it, oh, Dr. Yeah. Oz can do the same thing. So uh -huh. like, and, that's and an interesting it's thought. It's like you endeavor to create your own, like in essence, it's kind of a digital twin that you're building. It, it, the more and more you're you're conditioning it to do things that you like. Maybe it's not a, a twin of you like the way an identical twin would be, but it is kind of like this digital representation of yourself. And is it is it worth not just filling it with good things? Like should right. you? And is tell this it a some great things mirror? Bad at is this a <laughs> yeah. great it's mirror a, for us? The more we design mirror. ourselves, the more we existentially look at ourselves you know <laughs> and can we handle I, that <laughs> i told i mean i think this idea is imminent in the mainstream because i already did it like just i'm not a coder but i was already able to hack together a reasonable like uh llm that okay. like i can drop as many documents as i want into a google drive folder that okay. i specified and it can spit that all back to me really well it's days or hours there's probably someone in a hacker house working on this right now to make a mass uh appeal ver like a di like a very simple user interface to do this huh? I, I would not be surprised if by the end of this year or even by the time this podcast drops someone has <laughs> said like hey blah 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 dot com you know give us your credit card and then click here and then point to all the files you want in this thing, and now we are your personal LLM. Like, that yeah. is such an obvious idea to anyone who's read anything about AI that I think, like, that that idea is definitely going to happen very soon. Yeah. Like, speaking of ideas, like, the so the, the AI, quote-unquote, space is, is very broad, as uh -huh. is kind of the, the food space. Are there 
out in the food world, are there examples of this technology being used that you're finding particularly inspiring or interesting or maybe frightening in other ways? Not yet, because I don't think anyone's really taken the time to double down on training it. Because I think food, to, to be good at kind of food is so specific, I think. And um, mm -hmm. I, I think it does require someone taking down GPT-3 and piling it on with some database of every cookbook ever written. Um, to, to be either the New York Times ran this article, I think a year ago, right after GPT went out, they tried to make a Thanksgiving dinner based off of GPT's suggestions and it just came out hilariously bad. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I could have seen that coming, I guess, but it was really interesting and entertaining uh -huh. to read about how it happened. Um, I think there's a few big barriers, right? Because I think, um, Look, if I want to create an LLM that is a really great cooking recipe retrieval machine that could maybe infer, I think that's relatively simple-ish to do. Like, because you just have to find that database of those cookbooks and put it in there, and and you know, ideally, it can make sense out of that, right? I think that's interesting to create new. Like, I don't know if the Go Move Thirty Seven exists for um, exists for food, because. Think about how AlphaGo arrived at Move 37. It played Go by itself billions of times, right? And it had a really fast learning loop of what works and what doesn't work in Go. You can't do that with cooking yet because what are you going to do? Cook a billion meatloafs to find the best one? Yeah. yeah. So I don't care how fast a computer can compute all the permutations of how to make a meatloaf. You still need someone to actually make the damn thing and taste it <laughs> yeah. and, and give you feedback, positive feedback to minimize the loss function of meatloaf. Right. And so there's a so 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 what do you do then? You'd have to encode the entire like taste sensory mechanism in of humans brain. You'd have to model that digitally in order for it to have an AlphaGo experience where it can literally, in virtual space, make a million yeah. meatloafs. I'm not saying that's impossible. Yeah. That just feels very far off, you know? Yeah. Um, and what so, about in like agriculture or something like in that space where, where maybe they could, I mean, I guess agricultural knowledge is still evolving and has been for hundreds and hundreds of years, but is there maybe a missing piece that, that might exist out there? in terms of like yeah, rethinking I, our relationship to growing food. People, I, I think that's one of the areas where I think it's probably most advanced, you know. Um, I, I mean, I think from indoor farming to applying sensors and just data collection on, on regular farms, uh, there's been a handful of people that have already been working on that, trying to get really good learning loops in to predict, you know, you know what area, okay, I see this interesting fungus that I've never seen before, what do we uh, do? Uh, um, farmers Business Network, uh, which is a industry group for farmers, uh, they created a pilot called Norm. It's basically N O R M, like the the guy from Cheers, but mm -hmm. it's, it's called Norm, Enemy. and it's basically they they basically took a, a model, a base language model, and they piled in a bunch of agronomy data into it, and so it's a pilot, and it's heavily caveated by them saying like, you know, this is just an experiment, but yeah. the use case presumably is that a farmer can. Uh, pull out his or her smartphone in the field and be like, I see this interesting fungus I've never seen. What do I do? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think in the in the realm of ag tech, there they feel like they're more advanced than like culinary with with respect to using yeah. AI for. Yeah, we did. We we released a project. We've been working on it for years. Um, uh, major major um, 
company I can't say, but um, s- same idea. Take a picture of the leaf. Uh, yeah, that photo will. Um, and what's interesting about the model was it's kind of to your earlier point of you know do we get machines that can taste um, or or do people become nodes in an IoT kind of environment where the machine delegates that but the humans become sensors right so 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 the humans taste for the machine they become sensors versus the driver or the coordinator of the project right they so yeah in our case it's whatsapp and the farmers don't they don't go online except whatsapp um and and social media and that's what causes them to decide like should we spray should we not spray um for this for this disease because my neighbors are spraying you know yeah blah blah blah. and and that's where the project began and now it's evolving into far more than that but what those farmers have become are nodes in kind of an iot system that allow a farmer to check the area his area for like let's say hey this leaf i'm gonna upload it it says you know because because it's a you know can it always say it has this disease or that disease just from a photo no but it can confirm with other farmers and say you know what it looks like this disease and there have been reports of this disease in your area therefore you should spray um and that's really important to this company because if even though you would think they'd want more spraying because they make money that's actually not true um if you spray too much then the farmer can't sell their crop and so they Mm -hmm. really are 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 trying to be careful and mindful of the customer itself, not overspraying, and that's actually where yeah. the project began. Um, but yeah, this idea of of humans as part of a n- network or an IoT, like as a sensor, because we're quite good sensors, right? To your point, sophisticated in taste, and our senses are quite sophisticated. We make great sensors. Well, I, I think, I mean, the ag tech stuff, I, I totally agree. Use cases like you just talked about, I think are really, really exciting. And I think there's some real insight there that I think is going to have some great effects out there. Taste, I think, is so hard. I, I think even if you could chemically model the taste receptors and how people react to them, it's not just the flavor of something that gives you an overall impression. It's context. Yeah, right? 100%. I mean, I, I know I, 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 I've, we have an old family friend who my parents are friends with, and he was a wealthy guy. And uh, he was, you know, he, he was in Vietnam in the war, too. And he said, like, you know, uh, my favorite meal, my favorite food ever was this, this Big Mac that I had at McDonald's. And he's a guy who's traveled the world, eating everything delicious and, and fancy and whatever. Yet he said, like, you know, the Big Mac was my favorite meal because after I got honorably discharged from the war, after being shot in the leg, I came home after a hellish journey and I had that Big Mac and I was just brought to tears by how wonderful it was. (laughs) So, like, not only do you have to, like, encapsulate and digitize the physical things that are happening in your taste buds, how do you account for that? Right. You know? 100%. How do you account for that? I mean, there's tons of stuff that objectively a food you would sneer at, but I think are great uh-huh. because there's some other thing going on, oh, right? Oh, yeah. So, Childhood memories, grandma's apple pie, like, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's at, most, at most, I could see potentially deep into the future a personal LLM that models my overall impression of food for me. Exactly. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, it's but it's but knowing again, it's that the, grandma made eat. apple pie and then going, you know what? You might like the apple cobbler. Uh, you know, 
because because it's going to remind you of grandma's apple pie and and that to somebody else to your point it may say the you know the peach cobbler because it's going to remind your grandma made peach pie so you're going to want the peach and you're going to want the apple yeah, well, and 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 well i that is where we're going like, right i i think it was i think it was uh grant ockett's the chef of alinea in chicago i think it was him that said uh, this but he kind of called it the mom's pancakes problems where you know he's uh, saying like we we are some of the most talented chefs on the planet. My team can cook just about anything. Uh, but I'm not going to try to make your mom's pancakes. Because <laughs> I, can, I can deliver you a technically perfect pancake, right? Yes. By all measures, it's technically perfect. But I'm never going to be able to compete with your yes. objectively imperfect mom's pancakes. Oh, my God. I feel like that's like the biggest... Like newbie mistake if if you if you have no experience in cooking I um, a long time ago had a restaurant um, and uh, my partner you know came in with all of his grandma's like famous recipes and thought like yeah this is gonna be a hit you know everyone's gonna Oof. love these <laughs> we should put them on the menu and I was Oof. like oh my god this has got to be like the number one mistake in food <laughs> is thinking that your grandma's pancakes are going to be appreciated by other people the way you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, re I remember like years ago before like all the scandals came out for Mario Batali, I went to the, oh, I don't, I think it was his salami shop or something like that. Anyway, it was a place, it was a shop in Seattle, which I don't know if it exists anymore that made like homemade pasta. And it's it, like, I think Mario's actual grandmother was placed in the street side window making pasta. <laughs> and so I just like remember standing in line being like, okay, wow, he's basically just pimping out his grandmother to say like, to say like hey, you're all going to love my Nona's pasta. Like look at Nona, she's literally here in the window. Um, yeah. You know, so I just, I just thought that was such a weird thing. Like it is. It is. You've kind of commoditized your grandmother in a very overt way. Exactly. Right? And this kind of brings up something like to kind of circle back to your point. Like a company's going to come out with, and you know, I bite my tongue because you know we're going to be launching. We we've been in private beta for a few years now, and we'll be launching sure. within the next couple of months. So it's as if you knew that, um, which you didn't, for the record. Um, but one of the interesting things about this project in as we've been doing it, you know, behind the scenes, um, is there's this personal concept of an LLM, right? Um, but we also realize that there's a place also for a group LLM. Um, mm. That this also applies to like, it could be your family LLM, it could be your business LLM. Um, uh -huh. And and it's, it's, it's just more sophisticated, but still narrow, right? It's this idea that, that that there is context within different groups. It could be your Dungeons and Dragons team LLM. Oh my gosh! Right? Yes. Yeah. I see where you're going with <laughs> yeah. this. And so, <laughs> so making room for not only is there an LLM for you personally, but that there's these group LLMs also that are contextualized for you know trying to they know all the inside jokes yeah well and also I... just trying to pick yeah. the food that seven people will all like it's like not just the food you will like but hey seven people are coming over i'm not going to make seven different dishes for each person can you figure out for me what is the one thing i can make 
that all seven people will appreciate. And I find that really interesting because it, it's it's it, it's like halfway between, right? Two two things I'll say about that. I mean, like first off, you're right. I didn't know about that, but oh my gosh, that's such a great idea. I will love to be a beta tester if you need it. Like <laughs> I have so many different group chats with group friends that, like, if I could upload all of our inside jokes and just like our overall general tone. Like that'd be really just interesting to have like some LLM that's part of my inside inside group like contribute to the group. Right, right. And then the sec- the second thing is I think like do you know how many marriages you could save by just having it upload a married couple's eating history and helping it decide what to have for dinner? Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> it's like it's either the you know I, what restaurant I don't know what restaurant do you I don't know I, what do you feel like you know and just I be like screw like, it let's just such <laughs> a huge part of being in a relationship is just figuring out what to eat every night for dinner right. over and over again until you die it's like it's <laughs> so, like compromise bot right like <laughs> oh my gosh. So if you could like I mean I I see that's a unicorn right there on the marriage thing alone. Right. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It's a great idea. I mean, you're right. You're so right. That, that's such a great idea. It's like, yes, there's the individual one, and then there's the group one. I, I mean, I totally can envision in the future, everyone's going to have their dashboard of different purpose LLMs, right? Because uh-huh. we're all multidimensional, right? You know? It's it's like I, I, I believe in and subscribe to the good food movement of slow food and properly, you know, well food. But like I also have like certain junk foods that I absolutely like. And I think we're all multidimensional. Right. And you're right. I think we're each going to have like a quiver of arrows and those arrows are LLMs for different mm-hmm. situations. Yeah. And maybe that rolls up to like what appears to be a single interface, like our LLM UI. Yep. But behind the scenes, we're talking to many LLMs and they're talking to each other and, you know, trying to coordinate and and normalize and then, yeah, feed it to us in an anthropomorphic way. Maybe that may be completely unnecessary, too, but at least give us, you know, one throat to choke, so to speak. um, There there was already. Yeah, I mean, I I don't remember the name of it, but I I already did download like a I think a an app that actually ag- it was like the kayak of like LLMs where you could it, you could have one yeah. query and you could farm it out to all this. So, you, you know, yeah, there's probably opportunities for companies to get in on that without having to ever train anything. You know, yeah, just yeah, co- yeah it seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. So you get into I have an LLM, but its only job is to go out to ten other LLMs and then and then summarize the findings of those 10 so I don't have to read 10 answers and you're like oh boy okay but if that world exists right if that world exists where I think there's so many LLMs that there's a market for people who have startups that aggregate LLMs does that that creates a different condition because you look at what all like airlines do with tricky pricing to show up higher in the kayak Mm -hmm. or Expedia results right like Spirit does all the add-ons because you get the base price higher in the list and that's just kind of a bad outcome of that yeah like is there an equivalent for that where llms are gonna like juke their results to yes. show up higher in the you could almost say that's the future right it's it, as people gamify trying to show up higher in natural search for google and now we now have llms to help us make our create keywords for our site to show up in google right like literally, we can now use LLMs 
to generate keywords so that we show up and and the context would be where do you want to show up and it's gonna yeah. and it's gonna write the text and help you do it and to your point yeah th does this all become a cat and mouse game um as llms become the consumers you know for half of the products we buy and now this is just like a never-ending who's got more processing power <laughs> than the next guy. I already, I already, <laughs> I already see this happening because, like I mentioned before, I spend way more time on image generation stuff than I do on LLM stuff with my personal kind of research. And it? E there's a litany of websites right now that have all these different models that come from respected sources and unrespected sources. I think I mentioned in the previous chat we had about how I just went model downloading happy and I yep. downloaded one that hij hijacked my GPU and started mining <laughs> yeah. Bitcoin or whatever somebody. So, you know, I, I there's already that dynamic in image generation, local image generation where people are collecting all these models and refining the models. And I think that's both good and bad. I mean, there's some uh -huh. really stunning models on there that are way better than what a uh, stock mid-journey is creating for general purposes or specific purposes but then there's also yeah. some really weird bad malware things out there too yeah 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 could you generate content i mean the answer is yes but i mean at effectively could you generate content today like you said a you know a, a ton of web pages um in hopes that the future llm will pick them up in some sort of edge case that you know wouldn't get normalized from other data so you're like you know you've created your own like curl script or something right so your your own little like language right that that gets picked up by an llm and now you've like essentially seeded yeah. you know your own little llm inside of a, a a large llm because you said you know using klingon or whatever language you came up with yeah <laughs> well and and then another word like critique that I kind of bristle at too is like people saying that like uh, AI generated images are not art. And I really, I, I think I really reject that because it's not art in the sense, in the same way as like painting and oil painting is art, but it's more like an Andy Warhol thing where he, he used silk screening to mass produce things that he didn't i mean there's masterpieces he's made that exactly. he never laid a finger on and i actually like recently got my first paid project where a, a small part of it is actually creating ai images not as a i'm not doing it behind the scenes without the client knowing but we yeah. agreed that making images in a certain part of this project is going to be interesting and useful to show off and i spent days trying to get one image perfectly and it's not art in the sense of painting or sculpting but it's certainly a different kind of I, I it's almost like like electronic musicians that combine different synthesizers and settings yeah. to make interesting music you know it's it's it, that is art right yeah. but it's not the same as playing a violin i think the whole exercise of staying up late yeah. over and over again trying to get this image processor to develop the result that is going to be great yeah. is is really hard work and and so i just don't think that i i reject that kind of idea that like you know ai generated images is not art because there's also like this like warholian i don't know if that's a word but uh kind of marbling is, oh. degenerative ai that i've noticed like 
sometimes if I'm screwing around with like generative, what have I, what have I been using? Stable diffusion too, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. Case. Like if I feed sure. it really vague prompts, which is, which I kind of like to do to see how, yeah. how odd it can be. But a lot of times it'll default to like a, a an imagined product label. Like it wants to create commercially recognizable things in a way it seems like. Yeah. I, I think every new technology of making something comes with things that are initially seen as mistakes or problems that end up being interesting for that medium, mm-hmm. right? Like I think you're you're right. I think some of the chaos that comes out of these image generator things, while they're not maybe precise, they are interesting in their own right. I and I they're no different. They're absolutely no different than Jimi Hendrix using feedback in out of his amp to right. create music. You yeah, know. so it, this brings me to like this interesting combining the two ideas of what we talked about before and now, which is imagine that you you surfaced a whole selection of generated images that that you gen- let's say you just get a, enough of them, right? I, I don't know what enough of them is, but um, I don't think anybody does. But uh, you create enough of them, you put them on the internet in the style of of you right so we have these artists who have like said take my stuff off right because you can say you know create a, a dot you know a, a, an image in the style of blah blah, blah right the person yeah. so imagine you create your own style essentially you put it out there for the llms to pick up and then they kind of generate the model and now you go back and say create an image in the style of you of like your name that you of and all it's really doing is picking up all the images that you kind of seeded it, and now you have your own custom LLM, but inside of a generic. So Stable Diffusion is now like producing your specific style because you put it out yeah. on the internet, um, and you've created your own LLM without running it locally or training anything. Um, sort of interesting idea. Well, I mean, this is already happening in uh, in image generation where. Yes, people say, give me an image in the style of Van Gogh or whatever, but yeah. they're also saying, like, oh, give me an image in the style of Mid Journey. Give me an image in the style of Stable Diffusion right. 1.5. Give me an image in the style of <laughs> image of Stable Diffusion 1.5 XL, you know? Uh-huh. And and so that, to me, is just wild because, like, there's just... The remixing is happening at such a... Cause, it, yeah, it's just it bo- it blows my mind to think about how m- how many different creative permutations are possible when you get models citing other models and then models citing those models that cited other models. Right. So this is where that whole attribution thing becomes very convoluted. Thank like, that. if if I put a the entire work of Picasso into a model and then I reference it from another model and then add to it and then do it again and again and again. How much money do I owe the Picasso estate? Right. Yeah. There's also this yeah, idea too, of like art, the artistic process is, isn't completed until someone looks at the, the work and, and internalizes it a bit. Like when, and when I'm, when I'm doing these like bad generative exercises, like Alf eating pasta continually produces such a horrific, weird image where like the pasta becomes the fur, like it can't. Yeah seem untangled, but I have like a very visceral reaction to it. It feels like I'm looking at, you know, like Francis Bacon or something. There's like that kind of like strange, unsettling feeling that I can't quite pinpoint. So it, yeah. so there, there is that element of art in it, even though the artist might be, right. it's so fragmented, right? It's- We get so lost in who are, art belongs to. I mean, 
somebody I, I always have this i'm sure a lot of people do or if i you know chose a t-shirt or something and someone says nice t-shirt i don't say thank you because like i i didn't make it right <laughs> i'm yeah. like yeah it is kind of nice you know because it's not but then some people say thank you because because it's their taste and so they're taking credit for the art because they they chose it out of all the universe of t-shirts out there so they're like oh thank you i you know so who 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 really did I, own it? The most the most endless rabbit hole is the question: What is art? Right? We've yeah. been debate. People <laughs> have been debating this since people started doing cave drawings, right? And I just think there's never a good answer to it. And who gets um, credit? You know, because if you don't know what it is, then how do you give credit? And you say, well, you know, does credit go to the person who grew the food or to the person who made the dish or for the restaurants that put it on the menu or the person who recommended you try it (laughs) well it's like notoriously difficult to make money making art uh, i think that's a bigger problem too is that now it's become conceivably harder to do that and then well it's easier for people to kind of yeah it's context right just like taste Uh it's context right i mean i think part of part of art is most of the art market is not fueled by objective uh like aesthetic scores or reactions it's supply and demand right i mean you know it's it's some some painter made a limited edition of 10 of these things and him or her is very famous and has all these other works that are worth millions of dollars so guess what that thing's going to be worth millions of dollars it's the it's the thing that you know people go to like the moma and say like in front of a mondrian or like a rothko they say well i could do that well yeah but you didn't (laughs) Right. And you're not Mark Rothko, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so, yes, you could do it, but would it be hanging in the MoMA? Absolutely not, because right. you're just copying, right? And yeah. so, well, yeah, people say that about like a Picasso, but then they don't, they haven't looked at his early works. They don't realize that he, he, he can do the, the realistic painting yeah. as well. Like that happened and that somehow informed like this state. Yeah. And that all loops back to that whole new, the value of a nutrition label to an LLM. All of these themes, I think, research there because uh-huh. you're really trying to like, it's one thing to label everything that uh, a thing learned. It's uh-huh. another thing to attribute or financially yeah. credit it back to references. Like wh- where's the, le- I had a guitar teacher when I was like 12 years old. He was this super salty jazz cat before I knew what the word jazz cat really meant. But he, he would say to me, like, he would say to me, like, yeah, if you if you steal from one person, it's plagiarism. If you steal from everyone, it's research. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, exactly what I was going to say. Like, this whole concept of AI being a thing, it's really not. It's just something that's making us, making us face the absurdity of so many things that have been there. And this idea that somebody accidentally put peanut butter and chocolate and then somehow now they deserve to get all the money that is made from peanut butter and chocolate as a combination yeah. because because that act because they happen to be the one that accidentally did that versus somebody who spent their whole life learning a skill and then happened to produce something because they put a lot of work into it. We're like, well, so if you work really, 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 really hard at accidentally mixing peanut butter and chocolate, you deserve all the money. But if you come across it by accident, why do you deserve all the money? And and then who was the person who said, who actually took it to market? Like it just, 
It's absurd it's, it's, that we credit people with art, right? That we credit one well, person forever. <laughs> it, but it, but it's also, I mean, if you if you take the guitar teacher's thing of like you steal from one person's plagiarism, you steal from many. It's research. A human brain can only hold so many influences together, but that's sufficient enough to say that, like you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan's work is Stevie Ray Vaughan's, not uh, all of the hundreds of musicians he was influenced by, right? Okay, fine. Uh, LLMs basically enable us to steal from literally everything, right? That's it. And yeah. and so, like, how do you attribute that? You've basically amplified the human brain to not only steal from one person, to steal from right. billions of things, right? So, you know, if you're going to prosecute OpenAI for stealing from all these different authors, then you're definitely going to have to prosecute a musician from stealing from all of their influences. Right. Um, and then I also think, like, uh, with respect to IP and food, you're right. Like, you can't uh, copyright a recipe. Like, you can copyright, the most you can do is trade secrets. And, right. you know, the, the Coke the Coke secret formula is not a copyright. It's a trade secret, and they go under great uh, measures to protect it, just like open eyes weights. You know, the weights of ChatGPT are no different, fundamentally, I think, IP-wise, than the trade secret for Coke. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's it it's really hard to attribute these things, and sometimes it's just about keeping it a secret, like the old days of art. Ironically, you know where, and just hope there's not cocaine in the in the Coca Cola formula. Yes, yes. <laughs> it used to be. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, I, I hate to leave this conversation. No. I, yeah. It, I we go like on and on. It, we, we've traveled we all over. But, um, but this might be as good a place as any because uh -huh. I don't think there will be a good place. But, but we should <laughs> yeah. definitely find a way to continue it sometime soon. Absolutely, absolutely. It was yeah, so thanks, great to, to chat with you guys. Cool. Yeah, it's been a blast. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts, so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. <laughs> <laughs>